0: By the time paramedics removed Breanne Kiner from the ambulance and wheeled her into the ER at Children's Hospital, Suzanne Kiner was doing all she could to hold herself together. Breanne was writhing in pain, and the diarrhea just kept coming. So did the blood. Suzanne was afraid to leave Breanne's side. It looked and sounded like her little girl was dying. Her breathing was rapid. She had deep pain in her chest, her urine output had practically disappeared. Even her mental condition was deteriorating, and she was slurring her words when she tried to speak. When the hospital transferred Brienne to the ICU for round the clock observation, Suzanne wanted answers. The doctors informed her that Brienne's stool culture had come back and definitely showed the presence of E. coli 0157H7, and her symptoms suggested she had hemolytic uremic syndrome. Shortly after arriving in the ICU, Brienne suffered a seizure and stopped breathing. Doctors scrambled to resuscitate her. They gave her Dilantin intravenously, along with phenobarbital. Tubes were inserted in her chest. By the time doctors emerged to give Suzanne an update, Brianne was in a coma. Suzanne had trouble swallowing. She wanted to scream, but all she could do was cry.
1: she survive
0: she did phew yes so that firsthand account is pieced together from a book called poisoned the true story of the deadly e coli outbreak that changed the way americans eat by jeff benedict and -hmm. it's about the outbreak of e coli 0157 that you're going to hear a lot more about in 1993 And Brienne was one of the children who was infected with E. coli, and she did survive, but she has had a lot of lingering problems because of this infection. Mm. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh.
1: And I'm Erin Ullman-Updike.
0: And this is This Podcast Will Kill You.
1: And today we're talking about E. coli.
0: E. coli.
1: Do you know I always raise my hands up when I say the disease that we're talking about, and no one can see except you?
0: but I appreciate it. Thank you. So, so today's a big one.
1: It, it's massive, Erin.
0: I, oh I did gosh. not realize that when we were like, let's do E. coli.
1: Yeah, it's like, it's, well, yeah, we'll get into it. It's yeah. so big. It's so big. It's going to be a short episode, though. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> well, to help us through this episode... I think it's time for quarantinis.
1: I think it's quarantini time. <gasps> I have my first real
0: quarantini
1: in 11 months. Yay. Which feels quite exciting. What are we drinking today?
0: We are drinking the Cookie Don't. <laughs> so, <laughs> And in the Cookie Don't, it's actually quite delicious. It
1: is. It's really tasty.
0: It is dark rum. And chocolate liqueur, amaretto, ice cream, Mm -hmm. ice, Mm -hmm. chocolate syrup. You blend it Mm -hmm. and then you pour it into a glass that is rimmed with chocolate and crushed cookies.
1: It's so tasty. It's
0: really good. It's so good. <laughs> it's like too good, I think.
1: Yeah. We'll yeah. post the full recipe for this quarantini as well as our non-alcoholic pussy burrito on all of our social medias and our website so you can drink along with us.
0: Yes. And it's called the cookie don't for reasons that I'm sure you'll go into. Aaron. Oh, yeah.
1: We'll talk but, all about it.
0: And I'm sure that everyone here can guess. You can yeah.
1: guess. Yeah. Cookie dough don't. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it works. It works better if you read it, I think.
1: It does.
0: (laughs) We didn't think this one through.
1: It's still great.
0: I like it. Okay, so speaking of cookie dough Mm -hmm. and don'ts and whatever, Mm Erin, should we just get started?
1: I think so. Uh, We have merch. Check it out on our website. Click on merch, etc. Business. Let's do it. All right, cool. We'll take one quick break. right. E. coli. I wrote that maybe this is the most important bacterial species we'll ever talk about, but I feel like that's overkill.
0: Well, I feel like a lot of people might have opinions about that. They
1: probably would. So I'm not going to make that statement, even though I just said it. (laughs) (laughs) But it is massively important. It is massively important. The thing about it is that E. coli is everywhere. It's everywhere and it's everything. And it Causes almost every type of illness that you can think of. And we also use it in the lab to study every other disease, pretty much. E. coli is like the lab bacteria.
0: Oh, and not just every other disease, but life itself. Yes, all and of how life, life works.
1: <laughs> like literally. That's not an exaggeration.
0: Yeah, no, I'm gonna talk about it.
1: Oh, excellent. I can't wait because I'm not going to talk about it. (laughs) Oh, good. Oh, but we will get some of the basics out of the way first, and then we'll talk about the diseases that E. coli causes. Cool? Perfect. Okay. So E. coli is a bacterium. It's a gram-negative bacterium, so it's pink when we stain it on the microscope. (laughs) That's that's what it means for the purposes of this podcast. (laughs)
0: That's really the important takeaway, is that it's a pink bacterium. It's a
1: pink little bacterium, if you're going to paint it. That's what color (laughs) you should choose. It's rod-shaped, so it looks like a little tic-tac. Okay? Yeah. You have it in your mind now. For the most part, in our bodies, E. coli is a normal and important component of our gut microflora. It's always there, and it's supposed to be there. It's part of a healthy microbiome. But this is, this podcast will kill you, so that's not the E. coli that we're going to talk about today.
0: Nope. Although we could talk a little bit about those guys. Sure, sure.
1: So, <laughs> Aaron, when you think of the E. coli that makes you sick, uh-huh. what do you think of
0: what, you mean like what symptoms and signs yeah, and stuff? Yeah. Oh, I would say, well, after reading that hand account, I would say bloody diarrhea.
1: Bloody diarrhea.
0: And then also whatever HUS is, but I was mm-hmm. hoping you were going to tell me about that. Don't
1: worry, I'm going to. Okay. Bloody diarrhea is the thing that probably comes to most people's minds when they think of E. coli first, and that's because of, just like you said, that 0157 outbreak, which we'll talk about, you'll talk about, etc. yeah. The diarrhea, that's their official name, the diarrhea E. coli are probably the most infamous of the E. coli's that cause disease. For sure. But they're not the only ones. So here's how I'm gonna structure this biology section, because E. coli is so big. First, we're going to talk really quickly about what makes the pathogenic E. coli strains different than all of the normal E. coli or all of the non-pathogenic E. coli that live in our gut happily. Okay. And then we'll talk about the non-diarrheogenic E. coli just briefly, and then we'll talk poop.
0: Cool? Oh, great. love talking (laughs) poop. Me too. It's one of my favorite things to
1: talk about. (laughs) Okay. So... The main difference between the E. coli hanging out in our guts happily right now and the E. coli that made that little girl in the first-hand account massively sick are what are called virulence factors. Mm-hmm. We've talked about these before, right? I think so. Sure. I think so. Sure. Well, <laughs> if you don't remember what a virulence factor is, it's basically just stuff, things,
0: oh. Yeah, that clears it up.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Things that a bacteria or a virus or a parasite makes that helps it to cause disease in an organism. So let me give you some examples. Sometimes virulence factors allow for bacteria to attach to certain cells and colonize a new area in a host that they wouldn't be able to before.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Like little Velcro strips. Exactly. Little Velcro strips.
1: Sometimes it might be like a capsule, kind of like an armor, that allows it to evade a certain part of our immune response. That could be a virulence factor. It could be an endotoxin that the bacterium produces that also allows it to evade the immune system. Or an exotoxin that it produces and sends out into our body and actually causes damage to other cells. Cool. Okay. So virulence factors are literally anything that a pathogen can make that makes it more virulent, aka makes you get sicker. Cool? That
0: sounds reasonable.
1: So these subtypes of E. coli that are they're called different pathotypes because they are pathogenic collectively have a couple of main virulence factors that allow them to get us sick. And those two things are different types of adhesins, which allow them to adhere and colonize new areas, and toxins. Those are the two things that E. coli tends to use to be able to invade new organs in our body and make us sick in new ways. So another important thing about the virulence factors in E. coli is that a large number of them are on plasmids. Which we've talked about before, I think, right? Oh, did we talk about it with cholera? Maybe, because cholera definitely has plasmids. Anyways, plasmids are little round pieces of DNA that bacteria can move from, like, one bacterium to another. They can, like, pass it off. And so, basically, this allows for E. coli to hand off virulence factors in, like, between different strains of bacteria. Right. Okay. Okay that's like that's the whole pathogenesis like that's how all of these e coli have come to be is just little changes in their toxins or their virulence factors or their adhesions whatever that allows them to make us sick okay so what kinds of ways can e coli make us sick
0: <laughs>
1: so many different ways yeah all right the two main kinds of disease that you can get from e coli besides diarrhea are urinary tract infections? Oh yeah, did you okay. know that?
0: I think I did know that at one point. I don't know. It feels like a recovered memory.
1: Yeah. So these strains of E. coli are called UPEC. We're so right. many ridiculous acronyms with oh, E. coli. No,
0: I don't <laughs> love. I don't love acronyms.
1: UPEC is Europathogenic E. coli. Okay. Okay. They're all like that. They're all like blah, blah pathogenic E. coli. They're really. Easy. So they all end in PEC? Yeah. Yeah. They're all mostly Great. all. Sometimes they're like hex.
0: We'll, you'll see. <laughs> Heck and E. coli.
1: Heck and E. coli. <laughs> that was funny.
0: <laughs> you sound surprised. I liked it. It was good.
1: Okay. So the UPEC, the europathogenic E. coli, are strains of E. coli that. El- are really good at attaching to our urinary tract walls. Okay. So they have adhesins that allow them to do that. And they are the most common cause by far of UTIs. So huh. that means, yeah. like, okay, right? Like 80% of UTIs or something like that are caused by E. coli. And if you don't know what a UTI is, uh, the symptoms generally are things like burning on urination. Increased frequency, meaning you have to pee way more often than normal, or urgency, where you're like, if I don't pee right now, I'm going to pee my pants.
0: So that sounds a lot like gonorrhea, Aaron. <laughs> how, how are people going to distinguish between the two? So- <laughs>
1: So another thing that <laughs> UPEC can cause gonorrhea? is prostatitis. No, but it is prostatitis. And gonorrhea is another common cause of prostatitis, actually. So okay. that's if it goes up the urethra far enough to invade the prostate. Okay. But then this these strains of E. coli can actually keep going up and then can also cause like pyelonephritis, which is kidney infections as well, which is, uh, you yikes. can imagine, more serious than only a bladder infection. Okay, so we covered three already. We've got bladder infection, kidney infection, prostate infection, all from UPEC. Then we have the Hmm? (laughs) M-neck. I don't know if you're supposed to say it like that, but these are the (laughs) meningitis-associated E. coli. Ooh, that's right. Yeah, so this is one of the most common causes of meningitis in neonates,
0: so tiny babies. Okay.
1: It can also cause meningitis in adults, but it's much less common compared to other causes. Why? I think that just other bacteria are better at colonizing the meninges. And so you'd have to be pretty sick already or have a route of entry. So these strains of E. coli are associated mostly with meningitis following like a neurosurgical procedure. In
0: adults. Oh, okay. 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 Yeah.
1: But what's really scary is that in neonates, this type of E. coli infection has a fatality rate of like 15 to 40%. Wow. Yeah. It's really, it's really gnarly. And it's also an extremely common cause overall, adults and children, of bacterial sepsis. So bloodstream infections. Right. And that can actually be from any strain of E. coli. Not only the UPEC or MNEC strains, you can have any any way that E. coli can get into your blood. Once it gets there, it's pretty good at establishing an infection. Yikes! Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so those are collectively. You want another acronym here?
0: Oh gosh, another. So does it end in Heck or Pecker?
1: <laughs> yeah, it does.
0: What is it? Okay,
1: they're the XPEX.
0: <laughs> I, I can't. I can't, Erin. I can't.
1: These are the. Those are the extra intestinal pathogenic E. coli. Those oh, ones yeah. we just talked about.
0: Cool? Easy to remember, sure. XPEX. X-pex. X-pex. <laughs> XPEX. UPEX. That's all we've learned so far. MNEC. Oh goodness, I can't. Sorry. Okay, MNEC.
1: Okay, now we get into the more fun ones.
0: Oh yikes!
1: Okay, the EPEX. <laughs> oh god. <laughs> oh, people are going to hate me. <laughs> so now we're going to talk about the ones that actually colonize your gut in a way that is bad. The okay. enteropathogenic E. coli. The most famous of which we've heard a little bit about already. And that is the enterohemorrhagic E. coli. E. heck. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so EHEC is a form of EPEC.
1: Yeah, bruh. Okay.
0: <laughs> it totally
1: is. Do you want to know what gets even worse, though, Aaron? I, even I, this is too much for even me. EHEC is also called STEC or VTEC. Uh,
0: uh,
1: why? Let me tell you why. I'm so glad you asked. Oh, no. The enterohemorrhagic E. coli are the strains that cause bloody diarrhea. Okay. Enterohemorrhagic, like hemorrhage means bleeding out, entero means your gut, okay? Mm-hmm. So that's like a broad umbrella term that encompasses a number of different strains of E. coli, all of which end up with symptoms like bloody diarrhea. Some of those strains produce a toxin called shiga toxin. Oh, yeah. S-T, STEC, shiga toxin E. coli. Some other strains produce a toxin that's really, really similar to Shiga toxin, that is called Shiga-like toxin. Okay. Or verotoxin. Verotoxin.
0: Sure. So those two th- phrases are interchangeable. Yeah. And yet they still give rise to two different acronyms. Three. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, three. Yeah.
1: VTEC, Stech, EHEC. I think it's annoying, so I just go with EHEC because it's the broadest one and it encompasses all of them.
0: Cool? I mean, I'm, I'm just rolling with it.
1: Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what this actually does inside of your body. This shiga toxin or shiga-like toxin, it's the same toxin that's produced by another bacteria, shigella, which arguably might actually just be a subspecies of E. coli.
0: Okay, yeah. So, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I I talk a little bit about it, but yeah.
1: Yeah. It's basically it basically they're so closely related it might as well be a subspecies. It's also possible that E. coli O157 should actually be a Shigella.
0: It's like some E. coli strains should be Shigella and some Shigella exactly. strains should be E. coli. Yes. Is what 100%. I yeah, what yeah. I wrote. Okay.
1: Yeah. That
0: blew my mind, by the way. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So they all produce this toxin that the bacteria can then release that causes damage directly to the mucosa of your intestine. These bacteria tend to colonize in your large intestine, in your colon. And when they release this toxin, they can cause perforation of your intestine. They can cause necrosis. So they can cause your your colon to actually die in places. And this is what results in the bloody stools that you see in enterohemorrhagic E. coli infections.
0: Question about the stools, unless you're going to cover this in the poop section. Oh, we're in the
1: poop section, girl.
0: Oh, great. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I I thought so. I didn't want to get my hopes up in case we weren't. So (laughs) bloody diarrhea doesn't mean red blood in your poop.
1: Great question. It can. And in this case, it probably does. Okay. It all depends on where you're bleeding from. Yeah. So the higher up you bleed in your GI tract, the more black your stool is going to look when you poop it out. Right. The lower down you're bleeding, the more bright red this blood is going to be.
0: But so these S tech. V tech, etc., whatever ones that actually cause the hemorrhage, ehec mm-hmm. cause the hemorrhage in your gut, that can that can produce any shade of bloody diarrhea.
1: Yeah, yeah. Cause they colonize your colon and your colon is pretty big and large. So okay. if they're colonizing closer to Oh no, Erin. <laughs> 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 I'm gonna get my oh, my anatomy. If they're colonizing closer to the left side where the outlet is, then it might be more bright red blood. If they're colonizing closer to the start of your colon, it might be a darker color.
0: Okay. In in any case, seek medical attention. (laughs) Yeah, rah. Unless you ate beets the night before. Unless you unless it's beets. I feel
1: like we've had so many good title possibilities already.
0: Is- <laughs> well, I also feel like we've mentioned Beats on a couple other podcasts or a couple other episodes Probably. before. <laughs> e. coli, unless it's Beats. <laughs> <laughs> it's E. coli, unless it's Beats. <laughs> uh, okay. Beats by right. E. coli. Beats by <laughs>
1: Okay. <laughs> so... That's the damage that this toxin and that this bacteria causes in your colon where it's actually colonizing. But what's really, really dangerous about these enterohemorrhagic E. coli is that the toxin can actually leave the intestine and get into your bloodstream. If that happens, it can make it all the way to the kidneys, where it causes inflammation in the kidneys that can end up causing kidney failure. Yikes. And then what it also does is it it causes damage in your small blood vessels that then leads to small clots forming inside of your blood vessels, like little teensy-tiny clots, that when your blood then passes over these clotted chunks in your blood vessels, it shears your red blood cells. Oh, my goodness. Right. And so this is what's called a hemolytic anemia, because your oh. red blood cells are literally bursting open whoa! because they're traveling over these tiny microclots and those clots are formed by platelets. So now all your platelets in your blood are being used up. Mm. So the three main signs that you see are renal failure, kidney failure, this hemolytic anemia and thrombocytopenia, which means your your platelet count is low. And that collectively is what's known as hemolytic uremic syndrome.
0: Oh, wasn't that okay? Fun? Wow. So um, I have a question. Okay. How does it does it benefit E. coli to produce this toxin in terms of their replication or in terms of their ability to colonize new areas? Like, why do they? Why do some strains produce this toxin and some don't? Does it give them some sort of fitness advantage?
1: That's a really, really good question. I don't fully know the answer to that. But what I can tell you is that a lot of these strains of E. coli, especially like 0157, are naturally found in the guts of ruminants like cows and sheep. Okay. So I wonder if it provides a fitness advantage in those environments in some way. Hmm. Right? Like guts, the guts of cows are Bananas. they like have five stomachs and stuff. So I
0: know. What if the microflora <laughs> is totally different on each one of them?
1: Oh, it probably is. Ooh. I know, but
0: like, I'm there's probably a study out there, but
1: but we just haven't read it. Isn't that some veterinarian's okay. going to be like, you guys, let me tell you, tell <laughs> this us. Is like we want to know. Hat. Yeah. <laughs> we want to know. That's a really good question, though. Um, because yeah, the. Toxins are expensive for bacteria to produce, so right. presumably in some way it has to be, you would think, because these strains are so prevalent, you would think that, yeah, it does cause some kind of fitness advantage, probably. Huh. Great question. So yeah, that is uh, that is the enterohemorrhagic E. coli, the most famous of which is E. coli 0157. H7. specifically. I, let's just call
0: it 0157. That's what I do for most yeah, of
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is what causes outbreaks very often, um, but it also causes tons of infection across the globe and in the US that isn't outbreak associated. So we actually often never know what the source of infection is. But in general, you get sick between one and three days, you'll start having this diarrhea that's often bloody within one to three days after exposure, although it can be as long as 10. And about 5 to 10% of people that get infected with EHEC will end up getting hemolytic uremic syndrome.
0: Wow. I didn't know it was that high.
1: The thing is, that number varies a lot based on age. So in kids, it's potentially even higher, especially in very young children. But in mm-hmm. adults, that number is quite a lot less. So on balance. Um, yeah. So that's the enterohemorrhagic. There's one last kind of poop that I'd like to talk about before oh, we're done here.
0: Wonderful. <laughs>
1: so there's another strain of E. coli called ETEC. <laughs> <laughs> this
0: is. <me. laughs> Do we not talk about ETEC already? Nope, nope, we
1: haven't. We've had EHEC, and now we have tech. Extraterrestrial
0: is... E. coli.
1: Very, very good guess. So close. Enterotoxigenic. Okay. Okay. Entero, toxigenic. Yeah. It has a toxin and it's in your gut. And it's somehow
0: different than Shigella or than Shiga toxin.
1: Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. This is another kind of toxin. And specifically, this type of toxin is more similar to a toxin produced by Vibrio cholera. Oh. Yeah. So it's not the same toxin, but it's very similar. So you can imagine that the diarrhea that you have with this type is more similar to cholera diarrhea, which is what, Erin?
0: Rice water stool.
1: Exactly. So this is a watery diarrhea, not a bloody diarrhea. Okay? Okay.
0: Is that cool? Uh, Yes. I mean, cool is
1: maybe not the word I would choose. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, it's actually not cool because E-Tech, as it turns out, is the cause of what's often called traveler's diarrhea. Oh. Yes, that's E-Tech, which what that means is that E-Tech is an extremely important cause of diarrhea in children in developing countries. So Mm. second only to like rotavirus and probably up there in competition with rotavirus for the most important diarrheal disease. Okay. In the developing world. So it's a huge cause of morbidity and mortality and it's a watery diarrhea. So it's not bloody, but you're losing so much water that you then can end up dying from dehydration. Right, okay. There are other... Enteropathogenic E. coli.
0: <laughs> too big of a topic.
1: I know we're not going to talk about them because, quite <laughs> honestly, we don't know as much about them, and we don't have time, and etc. Um, if you want all of the nitty gritty details of all these different pathotypes, there was a great Nature review from 2004 that I read that goes into way too much detail, and that will be posted <laughs> on our website. So, <laughs> great. that's the biology of E. coli, Erin beautiful thank you thank you (laughs) i made it myself (laughs) so tell me how the heck did it get here where did this thing come from and why do some strains just want to kill us
0: oh great questions first let's take a little break I think that for most people, the words E. coli bring to mind these images uh, that you kind of just went over and described, this writhing gut, bloody diarrhea, just doubled over in the bathroom trying to hang on. And a smaller subset may also think of E. coli's role as a model organism in the lab.
1: That's what I think of, if we're being honest.
0: (laughs) Have you worked with E. coli before in the lab?
1: Um, yes. I used it during my master's a lot and also because we use it as a water quality indicator. So, right. I've worked
0: with E. coli a lot actually in the past. Yeah. yeah. It's a it's a stinky colonizer. Mm. Yeah. It does not <laughs> smell good when you create those big cultures. It
1: smells so
0: bad. It's really bad. <laughs> But I think that those two roles, you know, this like super pathogenic one and also this lab model organism, account for a tiny amount of the amazing diversity of E. coli. Ooh, cool. Because, I mean, E. coli is found all over the yeah, earth. Bro. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Inside people and animals and stuff and also outside of them.
1: Which is why it makes for a terrible water quality indicator. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was actually,
1: huh, (laughs) good point. Yes, thank you.
0: And also, they're incredibly numerous. Mm -hmm. So Carl Zimmer estimated in his book about E. coli, which was great, by the way, he estimated that there are about 100 billion billion E. coli on Earth, which is not a number I can comprehend, and I don't know. If anyone can comprehend it, please let us know. These bacteria are among the top, if not the very top, most studied organisms on the planet. Mm -hmm. Research on E. coli has led to Nobel Prizes, to genetic engineering, to insights into evolution and cellular biology, how genes work, and there could really be an entire podcast series on the contributions of E. coli to our understanding of how life works. So let's start at the beginning. And to do that, we have to go so far back... So, so far back before humans were even humans. Yes. Because E. coli has been with us for as long as we've been a species and way before and probably caused occasional foodborne illnesses during that long relationship. But until microscopy and microbiology emerged, it's hard to pinpoint exactly what might have caused the fatal diarrhea of this of this or that person and be able to conclusively say that it was E. coli. Mm-hmm. So... This is more, this history is less, these are the pandemics of E. coli, and more, yeah, more you're <laughs> about to find out. <laughs> so humans first learned about the existence of E. coli when in 1885, a German pediatrician named Theodor Escherich, which, Ooh. did we even say?
1: Oh my god, no, because do you know what? I can't pronounce it, and I didn't want another Giardia situation. <laughs>
0: well, okay. Okay. Escherichia. 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 Escherichia?
1: I have never attempted to pronounce that word in my life.
0: I don't – I mean, I've tried to do it, but I don't – I mean, it's an attempt, of course. But I remember my my micro-professor in undergrad saying that one of his friends, who was also a microbiologist, gave their daughter the middle name of Escherichia – because he thought it was so beautiful.
1: Wow. Weird. Yeah.
0: Anyway. Okay. So anyway, Theodore Escherich was looking at baby poop under the microscope and noticed mm-hmm. a bunch of rod-shaped bacteria. And he, the reason he was looking at baby poop is because he had been waging a full-on war against diarrhea, believing it to be one of the biggest killers of infants under his care. And he was right. Totally
1: trite. Yeah. Yeah. For sure.
0: He was looking... Under the scope to try to see if he could figure out what's good bacteria and what's bad bacteria. Wow. Which I think, yeah, 1885, forward thinker. Yeah. And so he would look for bacteria in both healthy and unhealthy children and say, okay, what can I find in just the unhealthy ones versus what do I find in both? Mm -hmm. And he found E. coli in both. And so he didn't really consider it to be that interesting of a finding. But he published it anyway – And absolutely no one took note of it. (laughs) Shocker. (laughs) Right? And the original name, which was much easier to pronounce, was Bacterium coli communis. (laughs) So common bacteria of the colon. Wow. Yeah. But seven years after his death uh, in 1918, scientists renamed it after him. Wow. Okay. So just a few years after that, a biochemist named Edward Tatum I don't know. I really want to know if he's related to um, Channing. Mr. Tatum. Channing, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Edward Tatum started to culture a strain of E. coli, the K 12 strain, if you're curious, in the lab. And the K 12, this K 12 strain that's so popular for lab work today, was isolated from a dude who had diphtheria and was living in California in the early 1900s. So,
1: what? Yeah, he there had you diphtheria go. and just happened to have this strain of E. coli.
0: I don't really know the full story, but yeah, I assume that's because this is a harmless strain. Like, this is a non pathogenic strain. Yeah, right. So, Tatum had recently gotten super interested in the very new field of genetics because this is the early 1900s. And he had actually worked with Thomas Hunt Morgan and George Beadle, which, like, two of the biggest pioneers in the field. And up until this point of time, Genetics had mostly been studied using things like fruit flies and bread mold, which were more complex in some ways than bacteria, particularly in that they had sex, like Mm -hmm. gene exchange, or were known to. Tatum wanted to see whether bacteria like E. coli also followed the one one gene for every enzyme rule that had been the pattern he discovered in mold. And he chose E. coli because it has very few requirements in the lab, grows rapidly, and produces visible colonies, which yeah. is useful for monitoring what exactly is going on. And he blasted E. coli with x-rays, managing to produce a few mutants, Awesome. which gave this huge indication, bacteria have genes. Because if you blast something with x-rays and then there are mutations that happen and there are differences in the, in the bacteria after that, then that shows that these things have changed based on how they... Right.
1: Their DNA their has been affected.
0: Yeah. That was a huge finding. But did that matter that much? Did the fact that bacteria had genes matter that much if the bacteria couldn't reproduce sexually? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so from these findings... Another guy named Joshua Lederberg, who was 21 years old, just wanted to say this. Yeah, I know.
1: Ugh, that hurts. (laughs) Don't tell me that he got like the Nobel Prize.
0: Oh my. (laughs) (laughs) He he did. (laughs) Okay, so Joshua Lederberg decided he would look for bacteria sex. So he was just convinced that people weren't looking hard enough. And he found it. So he found E. coli mutants could exchange genes somehow. And from this monumental discovery that led to basically the amount of research is – you can't count the number of, like, findings or new laws of biology or whatever, all these discoveries, these three dudes, so Lederberg, Tatum, and Beadle, were given the Nobel Prize in 1958.
1: And he was 21.
0: (sighs) He was 21, not in 1958, but he was 21 when When he he discovered bacteria sex. Yeah. Well, too late for me I mean, (laughs) it's great. Come on. Come on. It's never (laughs) too late. It's never too late. No, that's true. It's not. Studying E. coli would lead to other huge advancements, such as discovering that viruses had genetic material, which was learned by looking at the bacteriophages of E. coli, it would also help to show conclusively that genes are made of DNA, which overturned the long-held hypothesis that DNA was made of proteins. Oh. hmm And it even helped to reveal the structure of DNA in what apparently is known as the most beautiful experiment in biology. And I'm not going to get into the details of it, but it has to do with, like, nitrogen of different weights and lots of centrifuging. If you want to know more, read the book Microcosm by Carl Zimmer. Okay. It keeps going, though. E. coli also helped to show how DNA was made up of codons and how these codons matched to certain amino acids. By studying E. coli, scientists were learning about the rules that govern life itself and even what it means to be alive. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. E. coli has thousands of genes and scientists have a pretty good idea, if not exactly the idea, of what each of those genes do. Basically, you knock a gene out and you see what happens. And by fiddling with these mutant varieties of E. coli, researchers also figured out that genes can be turned off and turned on, and that they don't work in isolation, but are rather connected like a circuit board.
1: Mm.
0: E. coli has been subject to the whim of so many researchers who wanted to see if it could be grown at extremely high temperatures or super low levels of food or infected with tons of viruses – And what the scientists observed over and over again was evolution at work on a timescale that no one had thought was possible, even though now it kind of maybe seems obvious. Antibiotic resistance and all that? Exactly, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) E. coli was used in genetic engineering starting in the 1970s when it caused quite a stir. And now no one thinks twice. Uh, But people started using it for insulin production, which led to this huge Uh. industry, which was fueled initially by controversy and then by demand. Doctors sometimes would give or still give, I don't know, you tell me, a strain of E. coli called A034-86 to premature infants that don't have fully formed intestines because it helps them protect against nasty gut pathogens.
1: I don't know if they still do that, but that's genius because- Babies get colonized with E. coli in like minutes, like oh, after yeah. birth. It's amazing.
0: It's amazing. And some of, so this this particular sh- like helpful strain or whatever, some of its genes code for things that directly fight the weapons of strains like O157. Stop it. Yeah. Oh this my is like gosh. a total role reversal. Usually you're the one <laughs> that's telling I me about it. these <laughs> strain differences. I love <laughs> it. Okay. Okay. Just a couple more cool bits about E. coli before the history of the pathogenic one. The poop. Yes. E. coli can sense each other.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you're talking about this.
0: (laughs) It's amazing. Okay. So a group of researchers released E. coli labeled with a glowing protein into a maze and wanted to see how they would move and what would happen. And at first, so you could trace these individual cells, right?
1: Oh, my god. At first,
0: everything was random. But then... Eventually, the researchers saw a pattern emerge. The bacteria were moving towards other bacteria. And soon there was this giant cluster of E. coli just hanging out. Okay, so it turns out <laughs> you're doing a very happy dance. I, like I it. am. <laughs> it turns out that E. coli shoots out serine in its waste, and other E. coli might use that as a sensing mechanism to find other E. coli. Once they're all together, they might even change their behavior. So instead of having their normal flagellum, they grow a giant one that gets tied up with other flagella, creating a rat king of E. coli.
1: Oh my gosh, E. coli ha- like bacteria having behavior is one of the coolest things.
0: And this whole this whole rat king whatever like tails or flagella tied, yeah helps them move as a group across a Petri dish or maybe even your intestinal wall.
1: Definitely your intestinal wall. It's amazing. It's amazing. Dude.
0: Okay. Even though now I think most of us think of E. coli as this deadly foodborne terror, for several decades after its description and even after its use in a lab as basically the thing that revealed all secrets of life, mm-hmm. people weren't aware of how sick it could make you. Mm. So it wasn't until 1945 that the link between E. coli and horrific gastrointestinal disease was really conclusively made. Hmm. Have you ever heard of summer diarrhea?
1: No. I, I, <sighs> I know in – what was it, the polio episode? We talked like about closing down pools and things, but
0: summer diarrhea, no. Yeah. So this was – And like a known phenomenon is something called summer diarrhea. So if you go to like Google Scholar, you can find reports of now analysis of what the summer diarrhea was in Uh writings or whatever, but also in like reports from the early 1900s. So every summer, kids and, and infants in industrialized countries would get super sick with diarrhea, often bad enough to kill them. So it was this very seasonal trend of diarrhea. And... A British pathologist named John Bray decided to hunt for whatever pathogen might be causing this. Using antibody tests, he found that while only 4% of the healthy kids responded to the E. coli antibody test, like they were positive, Mm -hmm. 95% of sick kids did. Huh. And so then he went, he would go on to describe this strain and several more that were pathogenic to humans.
1: Interesting.
0: Okay, so now here's the part. That you've probably been waiting for, maybe? Yes, I don't know. Definitely. Maybe you've
1: enjoyed all of this? I have enjoyed all of this. Okay, good.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Enter 0157H7.
1: Dong, dong, dong. Mm-hmm.
0: Although we can't say for sure, 0157 seems to be a pretty recent arrival. Like 1975, to be wow,
1: exact. Wow, that's super recent.
0: Yeah, no samples can be found before then.
1: Fascinating.
0: It first made headlines in early 1982 in Medford, Oregon, and later that same year in Traverse City, Michigan. The source was undercooked burgers at McDonald's.
1: Oh.
0: And then it went quiet for about 10 years until the infamous 1993 Jack in the Box outbreak.
1: JTB, baby.
0: <laughs> I've never had Jack in the Box.
1: Do they not have it out, out- here?
0: Out east? No. Or oh. like, I don't know past the Mississippi River.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, JTV, man.
0: There have been dozens of 0157 outbreaks all over the world since its first appearance. And I could probably go into each one of them to talk about the source of infection and the lessons learned. But I'm just going to focus on the 1993 Jack in the Box outbreak in the Western US. Because this is probably the most famous foodborne or E. coli outbreak in the US.
1: It's pretty. It's oh, massive. Like everyone still talks about it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it put E. coli like in oh. as a popular phrase or as right. like a known phrase yeah. to people. Yeah, totally. It resulted in landmark personal injury lawsuits, increased oversight of food production and widespread public awareness of this deadly pathogen, which, you know, burgers used to be safe before this. Maybe some <laughs> worms. Yeah. <laughs> it started around Christmas... 1992, when six-year-old Lauren Rudolph was rushed to the ER in San Diego after having bloody diarrhea. After a few days of battling the illness, she passed away. And in January 1993, doctors at Children's Hospital in Seattle started noticing an unusual number of kids with hemolytic uremic syndrome, which is that thing you described. Yeah. And this set off some alarm bells because you don't really see that a number of cases very often it's not it's 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 pretty rare right yeah and so the high number of hus cases which is the hemo hemolytic uremic syndrome i'm just mm-hmm. going to call it hus yeah it pointed towards an e coli outbreak but those usually happen in the summer so where could these cases be coming from these children weren't connected to one another in any way Like that at daycare or something like that, Mm. but there must have been a shared source somewhere. Epidemiologists that were assigned to the case did their thing, asking parents about their lives, their movement patterns, what food they ate at home, where they ate, and eventually a likely culprit emerged. Jack in the box. The nation's – did you know it was the nation's oldest fast food chain? No, I did not know that. It beat out McDonald's by like a couple of months. Huh. Anyway, they they so Jack in the Box had recently been having this big promotion for their monster burger, so good it's scary, which oh, is like in retrospect not a great
1: not tagline. great. They don't make that burger anymore. <laughs>
0: no, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, the the PR campaign to get Jack in the Box to not fold as a company is pretty um I think also landmark. Yeah. yeah,
1: there's like, that's a whole podcast in and of itself, I feel like.
0: Oh, for sure. So, the president of Jack in the Box, Bob Nugent, when notified that the company might be the source of this horrible outbreak, he immediately stopped all of the restaurants in the affected areas from serving their burgers and destroyed the possibly contaminated batches of beef. Wow. Yeah. Oh, he was, he acted as fast as he, I think, it seemed like as fast as he could.
1: Yeah, that's awesome.
0: And he did all this without being entirely convinced that it was the beef, that it was Jack in the Box in the first place. But I mean, but you have dead kids, so it's like... Exactly. Yeah. Well, and everyone was very... Like, a lot of the people who were at Jack in the Box, I think, were um, felt awful. Like, yeah. were very, very troubled by... I can't even imagine. By their... Yeah. yeah. What their inactions, I think, had done. And so people knew at this time, people knew that undercooked chicken could be a problem in terms of salmonella, but no one really had heard of outbreaks of food poisoning associated with beef. It was a new thing at that point, or at least it seemed to be according to this book. And so even though there had been this E. coli outbreak just 10 years before the Jack in the Box, the one that was uh, in McDonald's, McDonald's, it had gotten quietly buried, and so McDonald's (laughs) wasn't really named. And so when Washington State epidemiologist John Kobayashi told Bob Nugent, the president of Jack in the Box, that this horrible outbreak affecting all of these kids was likely tied to E. coli-contaminated burgers, Nugent was like, what? So even though the contaminated beef had been stopped, it was too late for a lot of people, mostly children.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: By the end of the epidemic, 732 people were infected with E. coli. Mm -hmm.
1: 732 confirmed?
0: Confirmed. Whoa. All traced back to Jack in the Box restaurants in Washington, Idaho, Nevada, Nevada. How do you say (laughs) Nevada? I say Nevada and I know that's wrong, so I need to (laughs) say it properly. Nevada. Nevada and California. Yeah, it's a problem. Please
1: leave that in because it's the funniest thing I've ever heard.
0: A lot of people say Nevada.
1: Nevada. But the way that you went Nevada, Nevada. (laughs)
0: Because I knew it was wrong as soon as it left my mouth. (laughs) It's embarrassing. Oh, God. Avoiding these restaurants wasn't enough, though. One of the four children who died during the outbreak was 17 month old Riley Detweiler, and he contracted E. coli from a friend in daycare who had picked up the bacteria from a burger. Ugh. There were two other children who died, Selena Shribs and Michael Knoll, and all of the kids who died from this outbreak were younger were six years or younger.
1: Ugh those babies.
0: Yeah.
1: I ca- Ugh.
0: Yeah. Even if you were fortunate to survive the initial infection, many people, over 100, experience long-term side effects from the infection. Obviously, with so much tragedy and suffering experienced as a result of this epidemic, people wanted answers to questions like, how did this happen? And how can we make sure this doesn't happen again? The first question, how did this happen, actually ended up being fairly easy to answer, so in 1993, the federal regulations for the temperature for cooking beef were at 140 degrees Fahrenheit, 60 degrees Celsius. Oh. Okay. However, so 140 degrees, keep that in your head. In okay. Washington, the state law was actually 155 degrees, huh. 68.3 degrees Celsius. This regulation was, which was different than the federal regulation, higher temperature was put in place by the same epidemiologist, John Kobayashi, that I mentioned earlier, and because huh. he was aware of the danger that E. coli posed.
1: Wow, way to go.
0: He chose 155 degrees Fahrenheit because that was the temperature required to kill E. coli. Whoa. Jack in the Box in Washington was notified of this new regulation, but for whatever reason, didn't change their practices. They followed the federal regulation of 140 degrees Mm. So, yeah, a lot of the cases probably could have been prevented if they had followed Washington state law. But Jack in the Box argued that they weren't completely responsible for a contaminated product. The screening regulations for E. coli in beef weren't what they are today. Like, people didn't really screen that much for them? Dude, or like... we should
1: have had Matt Kmet come on this episode.
0: Oh my God, you're right. It's so what he does. It's so true. Shout out, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> and so researchers were desperately trying to figure out where the strain came from and how to prevent it from getting into the food supply. And that's something that's way easier said than done because it was found in around 28% of cows and probably that number has like, jumped since this book was written. And so basically, what happens is that during the slaughtering process, if a cow's colon is cut, that E. coli that's in the gut can then escape. And basically, all the meat is all blended together. That O, oh, like ground together. Yeah. That O157 can travel through literal tons of beef. Yeah. That's so gross. Horrific. Proper cooking will kill the bacteria, but if a few escape, then there you go.
1: And do you know the infectious dose for E. coli is like as little as 10 organisms? I remember
0: that from micro, yeah. Yeah, so. So that's how the E. coli got into the beef. But how do you make sure it doesn't happen again? That's a much trickier issue, and probably because we've had several outbreaks since then, it's – obviously tricky so there there are several stages of food prep that could have been improved first there's the beef industry itself you clean up that process maybe don't allow dropped carcasses to be incorporated maybe cleaning the floor on which they are dropped maybe following a one cow one burger practice which isn't what happens
1: i need to not think about it or i'll never eat another burger again in my life
0: <laughs> so let's well, it's it's funny that you said that because that was my exact response when i read this in- and <laughs> Carl Zimmer's book. And then the next paragraph is, and if you're vegetarian, don't feel so smug or something yeah. like that. Like you're not escaping it either because cows poop on crops. Oh, and then the like yeah.
1: most of the outbreak, not most, but a large number of the outbreaks recently have been in lettuce and spinach. Yeah. No or one is. Cookie
0: safe. cookie dough. We call it cookie, like the title of our quarantini, cookie don't, because raw flour is right. how people have gotten sick from yeah. E. coli, also. Yeah. Okay. But then there are also these restaurant quality control improvements that could be made. Cooking the beef at the temperature that actually kills E. coli. So this this E. coli outbreak is notable not just because of its size, but because of the changes it led to in the food industry and the government oversight of it. So it really did. It was like a huge, huge deal. And a lot of people who work in food safety are t- today still very unsatisfied by how it's done. And that's kind of a fair point, considering that outbreaks continue to happen. All right. So, you know, back to the whole vegetables are not necessarily safe. (laughs) There was a 1997 outbreak of 0157 in Japan from tainted radish sprouts that made 12,000 people sick.
1: Oh my, what?
0: Yeah. Three of whom died. 12,000. September 2006 in the U.S. There was an 157 outbreak in spinach that made 205 people sick. That same year, lettuce at Taco Bell made 71 people sick. Like, you could just go on and on and on and on. Yeah. You. So I could go on and on and on and on about all these different outbreaks, but I'm not going to. Instead, Aaron, I want you to tell me, where do we stand today with E. coli?
1: I can't wait to. All right E. coli today it's everywhere
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: yeah it's still everywhere it causes <laughs> it causes so many different diseases it's really hard to do an epidemiology section on this because like what where do you even begin I don't know let's start let's start where you left off with the inflammatory bloody EHEC foodborne outbreaks <laughs> Just looking over the last ten ish years, which is basically where you left off around two thousand six, two thousand seven, mm-hmm. there have been pretty much between one and four multi state outbreaks of like eHec, really bad bloody diarrhea E. coli every year.
0: Wow. Pretty much.
1: And each of these multi state outbreaks, the the multistate outbreaks are the only ones that are reported like easily accessible on the CDC website, you can go to every state health department and probably find a handful of outbreaks that were just contained to one single state. Mm -hmm. Um, But of these multi-state outbreaks, they range in size from like 18 or 20 cases on the low end to over 200 cases on the high end. Hmm. Um, And every year from each of these cases, a handful of people are hospitalized and end up getting hemolytic uremic syndrome. Most years, there aren't any deaths related to this, but every other year or so, there's a bad outbreak and there are some deaths associated with this. So to put some numbers on that from the last couple of years, so far in 2019, there have been 263 cases in three multi-state outbreaks uh, associated with ground bison, also flower. Oh, A.K.A. Cookie Dough. rot roh Yep. And ground beef. Of these 263 cases, 50 of them were hospitalized. Nobody died so far in 2019. 2018 was a little worse, although 2019's not over yet. There were three outbreaks with 290 cases, but 127 hospitalizations. And that's because two of those outbreaks were actually 0157.
0: So, oh.
1: Yeah. So these are just all of the EHEC or STEC, whatever you call it, outbreaks. Not all of those are O157. And it turns out that O157 is more likely to cause HUS than some of the other EHEC strains.
0: Just based on the amount of shiga toxin or what?
1: Yeah, or just the specific subtype of that shiga toxin. Right? Okay.
0: Yeah, right. or sugar-like
1: okay. toxin. Um, it's just more likely to end up causing HUS. So the years that you have 0157 outbreaks tend to be worse in terms of the number of people hospitalized and the number of deaths. But that's just the outbreaks. From the vast majority of EHEC cases are actually not outbreak-associated. They're just individuals who end up getting sick and maybe end up in the hospital. So in 2016, there were over 5,400 cases of EHEC reported.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's like 20 times higher than... Than the outbreak numbers.
1: Yeah, the vast majority of people, they aren't actually part of an outbreak, which means that you never actually figure out where their infection came from. Oh, gotcha. And that's another important part of it. The only time you can identify an outbreak is if you have multiple people coming to the same hospital or at least reporting to the same health district so that someone can pick up on the fact that there's a number of cases happening. Right. If just one person comes or even a couple people come but two different hospitals that somehow don't end up talking to each other, there's an outbreak going on perhaps, but you'll never know about it. You just have a handful of cases. Right. Does that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. So, yeah. And then, like you mentioned, that happened in the 1993 outbreak about 10 to 20% of cases can actually end up in what's called like a secondary attack, where people pass on that 0157 or that EHEC strain to somebody else in a daycare facility, changing diapers, nursing homes, etc. cetera. So, yeah. EHEC is gnarly. Yeah.
0: Um, but, again, that's not the only E. coli out there. <laughs> Great. There's the one that makes you have watery diarrhea instead of bloody diarrhea. So
1: let's talk about that one real quickly. <laughs>
0: Great. Let's. Let's.
1: So ETEC is what you were mentioning. The enterotoxigenic E. coli is a, a hugely important cause of morbidity and mortality worldwide, especially for infants and children. So... There's a lot of interest in developing a vaccine for something like ETEC because we're talking millions of children every year that are affected by this and potentially dying as a result of it. There are some candidates in trials that seem promising, but nothing so far is licensed. You're going to see that for all the different things. Okay, great. Yeah, cool. Uh, the other big type of E. coli is, of course, the europathogenic. E. coli, the UPEx. There's also a lot of interest in developing a vaccine for these because 80% of all UTIs are caused by E. coli, and recurrent UTIs are really, really common. So right. getting one UTI puts you at very high risk of getting a second UTI in a short period of time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So there's a lot of people working on vaccines for the various types of UPEx. Uh there's not really a lot promising so far, quite honestly. Oh my gosh. There, have... there anything promising about this section? No, it ends on the worst note possible. So great, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Uh, but yeah, it turns out that UTIs are a massive financial burden. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, like three and a half billion dollars a year in the U.S. alone is spent on UTIs.
0: Three and a half billion dollars. Yeah, dude. Well, what about other countries that don't have this outrageous healthcare oh, situation? Good,
1: good point. Good point. <laughs> but still, it's like eleven million doctor's visits in the U.S. every year, and two million emergency
0: room visits for U.S. Wow. alone. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so even though I, think it's I like those numbers <laughs> for understanding more than I do money,
1: <laughs> That makes sense. Um. So yeah, there. But there are a lot of there is a lot of work going on on ETEC, on UPEC, and even on the EHEC. So the enterohemorrhagic E. coli. There are people trying to come up with vaccines for all of these strains, but it, it's proving to be pretty elusive. Which isn't that surprising, considering how ubiquitous E. coli is and how we have co-evolved with it for so, like literally the entire time that we've existed as humans.
0: I mean because yeah also there it's part of our normal microflora so you'd right. have to attack it from a different angle and if you did like the shiga or shiga like toxin but cuz we have vaccines that are based on toxins.
1: Yeah, and that's exactly what most of these vaccines do. They're either component vaccines or they're toxoid vaccines, which are inactivated forms of a toxin, essentially. Um, And so that's exactly what people are trying to do, is to target the things that make these pathotypes different than our normal microflora. We just haven't been able to come up with one so far that produces a good immune response in humans to actually be protective, if that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the other thing that's really scary is that antibiotic resistance is on the rise for E. coli in general, but especially for E. coli that tend to cause uh, sepsis, so bacteremia,
0: okay. bloodborne infections. And those are most common in a hospital setting they're like very, after surgery?
1: Yeah, they're very common in hospital settings. Um, they can happen also in babies. Not just the meningitis, but just bloodborne infections in general. And from what I saw in a paper that I will post on our website, from 2000 to 2009, the rates of antibiotic resistant E. coli have risen about 300% from 2000 to
0: 2009.
1: What? Yeah, 300% rise. It's really bad. And the numbers that I saw were that E. coli sepsis, so Mm -hmm. sepsis from E. coli, in 2001 was estimated to have caused 40,000 deaths in the U.S., But in 2014, that number may have been as high as 85,000. What? Yeah. What? E. coli is a very common cause of sepsis, and sepsis is a very high mortality rate. So these are estimate numbers. Right, but but that's so many people. I know. Yeah, it's really scary. Oh my gosh. Oh no, that's the end. (laughs) Oh, Erin! It's literally the end of what I (laughs) have. That's where my page ends. May have been as high as 85,000.
0: Great. Okay, so good night, everyone. Sleep well. Oh, my Um, goodness.
1: I'm so sorry. We're sorry.
0: Okay, so not very much good news for E. coli.
1: Yeah, I should have um, organized that to be a happier ending. But, I mean, we could end it with the happiness that There is so much cool research going on using E. coli in a lab setting to develop other vaccines and cool stuff.
0: Uh, And maybe things will get better somehow.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's people working on it. There are people out there trying really hard to make these vaccines happen etc.
0: Maybe looking back, these will be the dark days. Well they kind of are the dark days, but right right now it's yeah. pretty dark days. <laughs> We're in some weird timeline. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> but yeah, that's E. coli. What this is this was a massive topic.
1: Yeah. We just barely even scratched the surface of that auger plate, let me tell you. Oh, I really like that. Thank you. I just came up with it. I didn't even plan that.
0: Mm-hmm. She checks her notes. Do
1: Do I say this joke? Check. All right.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, uh, I guess on these really sad notes, should we discuss sources? Yes, let's. So I I read a couple of books. One is called Microcosm, E. coli, and the New Science of Life, and that's by Carl Zimmer. I loved it. Really fascinating. A lot about the lab research done on E. coli and how it's provided answers to evolution. Then I also read a book about the 1993 Jack in the Box outbreak called Poisoned, the true story of the deadly E. coli outbreak that changed the way Americans eat. That's by Jeff Benedict. I can't necessarily recommend this book. That's all I'll say about it. Okay. And then I also watched a New York Times retro report That was like a new study report on the 1993 outbreak. And I'll also post a few more articles that I read.
1: Awesome. I will post all of the articles that I read, which included that really intense Nature Reviews microbiology paper, if you want the DEETs on E. coli pathotypes and then a bunch of reviews about the current status of various vaccines and things. All of these will be on thispodcastwillkillyou.com under the episodes tab. You can find the sources for this and all of our episodes.
0: Thank you to Bloodmobile for providing the music for this episode and all of our episodes.
1: Thank you to all of you for listening. This is the most fun to make this podcast and we
0: really love that you love it. Yes, thank you for allowing us to keep talking at you. It's so fun. (laughs) (laughs) And with that, please wash your hands and cook your meat. Dear God, wash your hands, you filthy animals. (laughs)